This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly Warhol Man Cave again in the piney woods of North Central Florida on God's Country in the Mellon Law Studio, protected by Crime Prevention 24-7-365 and sponsored by all the great sponsors you see rolling by the screen. And of course, our donors, we want to thank you so much for helping us get the truth out to you and get the issues to you that may help you become a better informed citizen, hopefully, and participate with uh, correct information rather than misinformation or misdirection or all the various uh, techniques that are used in controlling the narrative. Um, we've got uh, Phil Kirpin with us today. He was a regular, really, I'm proud to say, from time to time. Is that an oxymoron, a regular from time to time? Uh, president of American Commitment, which is a, a great think tank, so to speak, of all the issues that need to be uh, really honestly and objectively and thoroughly and intelligently analyzed. And then every once in a while, maybe used to persuade some obstinate president to make some actions. Um, and good luck with that when we have Uncle Joe in there, I guess. We'll talk about that today. Uh, we are going to be talking, among a, a lot of the things I'm sure we'll get into, and I'll be looking at the chat line here to see if you have any comments. Normally, we open the conversations up to the Friday line phone call, but we'll keep that closed for a while so we can talk directly with our good friend, Phil Kirpin. Um, the debt is a ticking time bomb, in my humble opinion, and I'm never wrong. Um, it's uh, It can explode in a way that all of a sudden we go from light to darkness. I'm serious about that. I mean, all of a sudden, you think the shutting down of the internet is profound which we did experience here, Phil, not too long ago in Florida and Georgia. Somebody inadvertently cut a cable and the internet went down in all of Georgia and Florida. And, uh, you, you know, you can imagine the confusion, chaos and standstill that brought us to. Banking came to a halt. Uh, if you buy tickets to any activities, they come to a halt, et cetera, et cetera. But this uh, debt is really, um, in a way, a much more serious well, I'm just going to say it much more serious uh, a deal because we can fix the Internet. We fixed the cable. We identified the problem. But this problem of the debt, I want to invite you, Phil, to talk about with us to get it started. And uh, what have you come what have you come up with, sir? Well, Ward, first of all, great to be with you. And uh, I hope I hope when the Internet went down, kids actually went and played outside because their phones stopped. <laughs> so maybe there was some maybe there was at least a little positive in that. Uh, there's not a lot of positive in where we're headed on the federal fiscal trajectory. Uh, revenues 
are actually pretty high right now, uh, which is interesting because they said with the Trump tax cuts, we were going to have, you know, a collapse in revenue. Actually, we had the second highest year in the history last year in terms of revenue as a percent of the economy. It was almost 20 percent of GDP, which is very, very high, uh, which is interesting. And if you look at the projections, revenues stay above the historical average throughout the next few decades. But what happens that's a big problem and that's a big change is spending really increases dramatically as a share of the economy. And of course, we had a little bit of a preview of this the last couple of years with all of you know, the $6 trillion of extra COVID spending that caused the wave of inflation that we've all been suffering under. And now that's finally starting to subside, although not without the pain of higher interest rates. And uh, you look at these projections and we've got sort of, you've got kind of... So, some of the COVID spending rolling off. So you've got a year or two where spending comes down a bit, but then it starts to rise and it just keeps rising as far as the eye can see. And uh, the debt burden rises dramatically as well. So the, according to the CBO, over the next uh, three decades, spending is going to rise to 30% of GDP and debt's going to rise to almost 200% of GDP. Uh, traditionally, economists say when you get to around 100%, when you get to a debt that's the size of your national economy, that's where you start to see a, an impact on economic performance and you start to cause economic harms. And of course, uh, then there's you know, there's the burden of carrying that debt in itself, which especially in an environment where interest rates are, you know, 3% or 4% or 5%, not 0%, that becomes very expensive to carry that debt burden. But then there's also the risk of a an acute debt crisis, as you mentioned. Of course, we saw this in Greece a couple of years ago. And if the markets lose confidence in your debt and they stop buying your bonds, uh, you can have a situation where you can't finance the operations of the government on a day-to-day basis and you have an, a, a real crisis, not, not a crisis of politicians' creation when they can't agree on what to do up there, but a real one where you actually don't have enough money to pay your bills. And uh, that kind of acute crisis, um, you know, we don't know when it'll happen. I, I can't tell you it's going to happen, you know, two years from now or 10 years from now or 20 years from now, but I can tell you, that if we don't do anything to change the path that we're on on government spending, sooner or later, we will have that kind of crisis. And we ought to prevent it from happening while we still have time. Well, I'm looking at some articles that we talked about just before we went live on the air. And um, here's some of the things that are bothering a lot of us. Um, and maybe you can talk a little bit about them with this. Uh, I'm sure they're familiar terminology. First of all, we had that COVID relief bill of $2.2 million. Um, you know, I'm beginning to trillion. I'm sorry, trillion. Yeah, I'm beginning to to realize that this COVID deal really has hurt us in many, many ways, uh, Phil, that are just starting to manifest themselves. Might you comment on that? And yeah, well, you know what happened. What happened when COVID hit is essentially both parties in Washington agreed on just spending as much money as possible, and in fact. You know that first the the, the first bill. You're t- we're talking about the, the Biden bill, the uh, the two point one or two point two trillion dollars spending bill that passed very early in Biden, and that was really fuel on the fire of inflation. That was kind of the, the bomb that went off that that triggered uh, you know these dramatically rising prices for everything. But I think the worst economic damage goes back to the very first bill they passed uh, under Trump, that first CARES Act, where the only one who came back and objected was Thomas Massey, and uh, they were all yelling at him and how dare he? And you know that bill. Uh, created the supersized unemployment benefits. And we basically adopted as a matter of policy for the country that what we wanted people not to be working, that we thought it was better for people not to be working. And, you know, the theory at the time was that that would stop the virus from spreading. But of course, 
despite everything we, that we did, more or less everyone got the virus anyway. And so there wasn't really much, if any, benefit from a public health standpoint, but the economic damage was devastating. And you know, even since we've ended officially the supersized federal unemployment benefits, there's still an awful lot of states, something like half the states now, where your Obamacare benefits plus unemployment benefits is higher than the median income. So people are making more than half of the people who are working by not working. And uh, that is a major, major problem that has major economic consequences. And in fact, even as the economies sort of come back, for the most part, we've got much lower participation. You've got much lower number of people working. And uh, that's causing a lot of problems uh, for businesses that need workers. You've got help wanted signs everywhere. And so you've got kind of this weird situation where uh, employment markets, labor markets are, are notionally really tight. We have very low unemployment numbers, but it's not uh, indicative of an, of an economy that's performing really well. Instead, it's indicative of a policy environment where we're paying a lot of people not to work. And so it's hard for businesses to get employees, uh, even as the economy's weakening. And so it, I think we made some major, major mistakes. And on top of that sort of incentive problem, Ward, you know, we ended up between, you know, there ended up being three or four or five, I don't know exactly how many of these big COVID spending bills, but when you add them up, it's about $6 trillion uh, of additional spending on top of all the money that the government usually spends. And of course, the there weren't real lenders to lend that money to the government. 90% of it was money that was printed by the Federal Reserve. Uh, those, with the expansion of the Federal Reserve balance sheet is what financed all of that COVID spending. So it couldn't be anything but inflationary. It was new money that was created for the purpose of, of, uh, of government spending. And that means that we all paid for it. We all paid for it in higher prices for everything. Well, we have a couple of reactions to what you just said. I'll pass them along to you. Um, are some of these states using the COVID money as a slush fund for pet projects is one question. And how about recalling the COVID money? Can that be done? Yeah, I mean, they're using the money for almost anything you can imagine. I just saw the, uh, the governor of New Jersey used it to buy like eight SUVs for his entourage using COVID money. Uh, he's driving around in brand new SUVs, uh, which is funny because he's like a Mr. Global Warming guy, too. But oh, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're using the money. They've used the money for, for almost anything you can imagine. There have been some prosecutions for you know fraud and that kind of stuff, but very few. Uh, it looks like that as much as $200 billion of the expanded unemployment benefits may have been straight up stolen. About half of that money probably ended up in China. And so, you know, we funded something like half a year of the defense budget of China through the expanded unemployment. How did it wind up in China, Phil? They filed fake unemployment claims and we paid them. You know? I got you. I got you. It's, uh, you know, and then Nigeria. I mean, there were a, a substantial amount of the fraud was international, which, you know, you ought to think, those claims should have really been scrutinized when they come in and it's international. But uh, look, we, we had an enormous amount of waste and just the philosophy was shovel as much money out of the door as quickly as possible. And, you know, don't don't worry about where it's going too much. And so uh, just the amount of money that got ripped off is I mean, it's definitely in the hundreds of billions of dollars. It's almost staggering. And uh, to answer the second question, yeah, there's a lot of unspent obligated COVID funds still. And that would be the easiest thing for Congress to cut. I mean, look, if there's serious about cutting spending at all, the first thing you should do is say all the COVID money that's not spent yet is rescinded. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't see why they would have any difficulty at all doing that, except that um, you know the Democrats are still in denial and saying that COVID's still an emergency. We're actually going to have a vote on the House floor next week for the first time uh, on ending the COVID national emergency. We've we've voted on it three times in the Senate. It's passed the Senate three times, but Pelosi would never allow a House vote. I think. 
where I think that's going to pass the House and Senate and Biden's going to use the first veto of his presidency to keep the COVID emergency going. Really? Which tells you really? how bizarrely out of touch he is. Really? And that, that's fiat money, right? According to one of our uh, listeners here, it's not backed by any commodity, right? Uh, that's right. We're, they, all, all of this money is backed only by the full faith and credit of the United States government. And, uh, you know, that's the, um, you know, I mean, they can print as much as they want. And the Federal Reserve uh, basically supplied all of the money for all of that government spending. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people say that inflation was all the bad Fed policy. And that's true to a certain extent. But, you know, one of the major reasons that the Fed policy was so wildly expansionary of the money supply over the last few years during COVID is they were financing all of that government spending that Congress was doing. You know, and if they hadn't been doing that, uh, I'm not sure that they would have been able to spend as much money as they spent. I don't think there would have been real bond buyers for $6 trillion of new debt to spend on COVID stuff. And so, you know, the, the Fed just printed the money. Let's talk about the American Rescue Plan is $1.9 trillion. What uh, is this that? Was what the, is the American uh, Rescue Plan? I mean, the, what a title. Yeah, this was the uh, this was the giant bill that, that Biden passed when he first came into office. Uh, he called it the, uh, the inflation bomb. Uh, even Democrat economists were saying, don't do this. There's so much money that's already been spent uh, for COVID. You don't need to do another bill. It's going to be very inflationary, including Larry Summers uh, said this repeatedly. And uh, they just went sort of full steam ahead. And of course, uh, this was also when the teachers unions extracted their ransom of 150 billion plus, whatever it ends up being, 180 billion dollars of spending over 10 years. And they said, we're not going to open public schools unless you give us this massive ransom that has nothing to do with COVID because none of the money even gets spent <laughs> in the near term. It's yet spent over years. Uh, and they essentially dictated to the CDC that fake guidance that actually called for reclosing schools in January of 2021 uh, unless that bill passed. And so that was the probably the most offensive to me element of that bill. But it had, of course, uh, you know, all kinds of additional spending in there, including this, you know, $350 billion that went to the states. And by the way, they, they put in that bill that states were prohibited from cutting taxes. They tried to actually ban tax cuts <laughs> at the state level. And that got struck, that got blocked in court, fortunately. Uh, but they, they actually tried to uh, you know, send a massive amount of money to the states and then prohibit them from cutting their own taxes. Uh, and fortunately, that element of it was struck down in court and states have cut taxes pretty aggressively in conservative states. It's one of the reasons that's where everyone's moving. Uh, but, uh, uh, by, uh, by the way, I don't know if you saw the U-Haul data, but Florida lost to Texas again. You were number two uh, in one way, U-Haul rentals to Texas. <laughs> so your governor, needs to, your governor needs to step it up and try to beat Texas next year. Oh, my uh, golly. Well, if he's getting the New Yorkers, we'll let him have them. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's mostly Californians moving. I think Texas. so, the too. The New Yorkers go to you. Yeah, we get the New Yorkers and Texas get the Californians. What about this uh, infrastructure bill of $1 trillion? Um, anything well, that had... That had, uh, it had some money uh, for, the, you know, it's interesting. They, they put this bill, they put it, they put some money for roads and bridges in there, which is how they got Republicans to vote for it, right? And then they had tons of money for, you know, bike trails and mass transit and, you know, green subsidies and all the usual crapola that the left loves. Then the Department of Transportation put out a memo saying you can't use any of this money to build new roads or to expand and add lanes to existing roads. So they played <laughs> the Republicans for total fools on that bill. Uh, I think we're going to get a vote uh, 
in the Senate to overturn that memo. I'll be interested to see how Democrats vote on that. But, you know, it's another one of these things. OK, even if we pass it in the House and Senate, Biden will veto it. and He's going to keep that memo in force. And he's going to basically pay play Republicans for fools because you have this, you know, this massive infrastructure bill where you can't actually use it to expand the infrastructure that people want and that they use. Uh, instead, it's going to go, you know, mostly to bicycle trails and, uh, you know, electric vehicle charging stations and, uh, you know, the you know, ver- various and sundry left wing priorities. And so yeah, the permanent spending commitment for climate and clean energy subsidies. Um, boy, what a boondoggle that is. And, um, but they've got that all piled into these bills. I'm wondering how successful- the, the other thing, Ward, the other thing about that bill that's unprecedented is every highway bill we've ever done before this one, basically the money is spent by formula. And, uh, this one's got some huge amount of money, a hundred billion dollars or something like that. That's under the discretionary control of secretary Pete Buttigieg, and he can spend it more or less however he wants. And uh, Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You know, that's going to go to every left-wing group and community, this, that, and the other. I mean, just the amount of money that he's going to have control over under this law is, is astonishing. We've never really done something like that before. It's just unbelievable. Um, the, let's, see, let's see if we can get a grip on this. Um, defense spending. Um, what we're sending if you will, to the Ukraine situation. Is it in addition a new defense spending yeah. on top yes. of our normal? Yeah, that's been sort of... In other of words, different. is that war costing us money? They've designated that emergency spending. That's above and beyond on top of the normal defense budget. So it's something like $50 billion. I don't know the exact... It might be more now after that last bill they passed. Um and that's on top of what we normally spend on defense. And, you know, a lot of conservatives say we can only ever increase defense, that, you know, there, there are no cuts to be had in the defense budget. I actually disagree with that. I think that, like any entity in government, there's a tremendous amount of waste in the defense budget. And even just, you know, you were talking about all the green energy nonsense. There's a ton of that in the defense department. There's, you know, green energy fuel for our, uh, you know, uh, naval ships and that kind of stuff. There, there's billions of dollars of stuff in our defense budget. That has nothing to do with defending our country and has nothing to do with any legitimate military priority. It's just, you know, look, a lot of the, you know what, the the money for all the uh, COVID tests that Biden sent out in the mail, that was Department of Defense. That was a Department of Defense procurement. So there's there's so much stuff in there that just has nothing to do with anything any normal person would think of as defending our country. And I, that's how I think, that's where I think we, we need to find cuts. I mean, I think we should find cuts in every, there's no agency of the federal government that's so well run that you can't find major cuts, in my opinion, and that includes defense. Well, to what extent, the, and we have had Ted Yoho on here on Wednesdays with me, and he's very much in touch with the Freedom Caucus. So, and the Freedom Caucus, you know, held McCarthy's feet to fire, as you know, and I'm wondering if it's going to be effective that you shall take 72 hours to actually read the bill. Um, I, come on, they don't even read the bill. Yeah. Well, I mean, 72 hours is nice, but the last omnibus spending bill they passed, Ward, it was it was over 4,000 pages with over 2,000 pages of appendixes. So it was like 6,000 or 7,000 pages of reading. I mean, you can give me three days. I'm still not going to find everything in that. By the way, no. you know, it's been, it's been, you know, what's it been a month, a month, month and a half since they passed that we still don't know what's in it. I mean, so three days is nice, but unless you stop doing these gigantic bills, it's still not going to make much, you know, it'll, it, it's better than 
12 hours or whatever they had on the 6,000 pager, but we're still not going to find most of the junk in there if they keep doing things that way with these gigantic bills. Uh, you know, so they really, I think for the, for the spending bills, for the appropriations bills this year, they've got to get at least on the house side, which is what they can control. They've got to do the 13 appropriations bills as 13 separate individual bills, not wrapped up altogether. And they've got to do it like they got the speaker to promise with an, with an open floor process where people can actually have amendments and have votes on amendments. And they had a bill uh, yesterday in the house on uh, reforming the uh, strategic petroleum reserve so the president can't use it for political purposes and uh, sort of putting some some guardrails on that. And they brought it to the floor and allowed amendments. It was the first time in, I think, six or seven years that amendments were allowed on the floor of the United States House of Representatives. And, uh, you know, they voted on them and the world didn't end. And, you know, I think that it's a really good thing that the House is not going to be run in a dictatorial top-down fashion where the Speaker makes all the decisions and individual members can't do anything except vote on what the Speaker's already lined up. I think it's really, really positive that those 20 guys forced uh, McCarthy's hand and we're going to have a House where individual members can actually legislate and they actually debate and vote on things. Well, that was the conclusion Ted and I came to. Of course, Ted's very well connected with those guys. And um, they were very effective. I mean, they really... Initially, with these, we speculated that perhaps McCarthy wouldn't get in and somebody else would. Uh, but the longer it went on, the better, ironically, it was because the more concessions he had to give to those 20 or so people. And those are good guys for the most part. I know Mark Meadows, I met him, you know, and he's a good guy. He's just a solid guy from Western North Carolina. Um, not, not one of the, you know, you know what? <laughs> The two guys that I was the most impressed with were the two guys that I thought were just in, incredibly effective during that whole week were Chip Roy from Texas and Dan Bishop from North Carolina. And I think they're, they're really rising stars because I, I tell you, I watched them do these interviews on TV and they would like get the liberal interviewer basically to agree with them by the end of it. Like, this is what we're asking for. We and, and, and they were, I thought, incredibly articulate and, uh, that's why they won, because their asks were so eminently reasonable. I mean, how could they not win? And so I, I, I thought that as much as it seemed like things were sort of out of control and people didn't know what was going on, I actually think that the, uh, the rebels had a pretty good plan and they executed it very effectively. And I think that McCarthy, at the end of the day, should probably thank them, because I think he's going to be a much better speaker running things the way he's now going to than he would have been if he tried to be a Nancy Pelosi, because... Uh, Republicans weren't going to go along with a dictatorial style in the House, and 222 is such a small number that I don't think I, I don't think he would have. I think he's going to be a much better speaker because of what they did. I think a much more effective one. Well, the most dramatic public of, uh, movie he's made is Canning Schiff. Uh, that guy is a card-carrying, bona fide, proven liar. Yeah, and and a treasonable in many people's minds because of what he did to perpetuate this huge hoax. Um, One of the funniest things, I don't know if you saw this word, but right after Schiff got kicked off the Intelligence Committee, he put a video out complaining about it on TikTok. So an app that's actually been banned by the government because of its ties to the communist Chinese, that it has spyware, that they can track you based on it. That was the app he chose to use to complain about being kicked off the Intelligence. So he was actually proving that it was a good, good idea to kick him off the committee. Uh, by his choice of app, I think. Well, it's not difficult to prove how he's behaved, and and it's really unethical. You know, let's get him showing the highway. You know, by the way, I've got a note here. Congresswoman Kat Kamik is watching. So uh, let's talk about the uh, 
committee that uh, Kat Kamek has been put on. Do uh, you have any studies on that that you've done already? Which, uh, sorry, which committee is that work? Is to watch the government um, uh, behavior. Uh, so the, the weaponization of government. Yeah, uh, the weaponization uh, of the government. Jim Jordan's doing. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that uh, the left has launched a culture war in this country. And because they have the media and corporate America on their side, they're able to do it in a way where they can attack us when we criticize them or when we talk about what they're doing or when we shine a light on what they're doing. And I think that uh, this committee is going to be really important to ferret out the role that, for instance, the Department of Education has in pushing things like critical race theory and all the gender craziness in the schools and all of that, uh, the role that policies at HHS have played uh, in advancing that kind of stuff. And uh, they also, I think, are going to be able to ferret out uh, the types of abuses that we've seen on social media, banning and suppressing dissent, not just on those culture war issues, but also on COVID, on uh, sort of all of the other related uh, policy debates we've had over the last couple of years. We've got to have penalties for government employees that conspire with private companies to deny people their rights. And uh, they've gotten much more sophisticated. You know, it's not a letter from the government saying, you know, you're not allowed to speak. Okay. Instead, it's the government calling the guy at Facebook or Twitter and saying, these are the accounts I want banned. And that is a massive threat to our political system, a massive threat to the First Amendment. And uh, I, I would like to see that committee, from an oversight standpoint, figure out who these people are and what they did, but also then make recommendations that lead to legislation. And I know Jordan's got a draft bill already that prohibits some of this stuff, but I looked at it and it's like the penalties are like you can get fired or you can get fined. You know, I want criminal penalties. I want these people to face jail time if they deny people their First Amendment rights. And, uh, you know, I think that we've got to be willing to use the power that we've got uh, in controlling the House of Representatives to push back to the maximum extent possible on all of these abuses of power. And, you know, maybe we won't be able to get legislation all the way through to being passed and, and signed by the president. But boy, we can shame them for what they've done and hold them accountable at the ballot box if we can't fix these things legislatively. So, I mean, I think the I think the First Amendment issues are enormous and also the sort of the, the left wing takeover of the culture and the extent to which they're using government to do that. Those would be my major focuses. I'm sure they've got a laundry list of other things also. But I think that's really or what from my perspective, those are the things that the grassroots are really, really concerned about. And we're to, we, we are grassroots here on the Ward Scott Files, and I don't know if you realize this, but uh, YouTube has permanently taken down our channel for violation of your community standards, and so-called community standards. And we have no way of disputing it. Uh, you can issue all sorts of, well, what was it specific? You'll get an answer. Um, this is the awesome kind of power, you know, taking the president off of, uh, off of uh, Facebook, you know, of these type of things you're talking about really a fundamental violation of constitutional rights. You talk about rights and all the rights that people want to read into the Constitution. This is an actual right. You know, all we're doing uh, you know, is having the FBI, debate. Huh? The, FBI has staff, the FBI has people in the offices of these companies. We certainly know that's true at Twitter, and Lane, I would be surprised if it's not true at the other ones as well. The only reason we have a window on the extent to which government was pulling the strings on all of this is because Elon Musk bought the company and opened the window. Exactly. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't know. Exactly. 
We're talking with Phil Kirpin now, who is the uh, president of American Commitment, a great guest, just regular guest of ours, very uh, always enlightening, always informative. If you have an issue or question, and as I say, we have a notice here, Congressman Kat Kamik is watching. So I hope uh, uh, Kat is listening to what you said, because I think it's absolutely dead on. Uh, what we need to do is uh, really make this very hot for them so that they have a lot of public opinion come back on them at a congressional level. Because when you are incestuous, as the corporations are, uh, with the, the tech platforms and the government wound up with the, um, uh, the, the narrative, if you will, the acceptable narrative, um, you've got a real problem. And the, 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 we don't have any way to redress it. We don't have any way to come back on it. So we do need congressional help. So I hope this committee, like you, I hope this committee becomes a very influential committee uh, and makes a lot of public uh, stink about it and makes people aware. Uh, very few people know about this unless they're in the situation I'm in or, uh, you know, you study and that sort of business. And like you say, if it were not for Musk and really tr for Trump, too, you know, uh, banning the president and, and he's now a declared candidate and, you know, you're not going to let him out there to talk. I mean, that's pretty heavy, don't you think? Well, if you look at the press release that Facebook put out, they were like, we're allowing Trump back on Facebook. And then they were like, but here are all the conditions and we'll ban him again. If he, and it's like, OK, I mean, I, I, I don't if I were him, I wouldn't go back, but we'll see what he does. I, I, he claims he's not going to. I, yeah, I, yeah. I don't. Yeah, he claims, we didn't. We went to Rumble. We asked all of our friends to to follow us on Rumble. And, um, we, you know, we went, we got, you know, we don't, we're not going back to YouTube. I mean, why would you put, <laughs> why would you go back to that kind of stuff? So um, uh, we're coming up on a bottom of the hour break, Phil. You've got a little more time with us, I hope. You always have in the past. So we've got a lot of things to talk about. I want to talk about when we get back the central bank and raising interest rates seven times last year and getting ready to do it again. Um, you know, that's going to cool down the housing market. No question already has. Now, some people in Florida might actually welcome that because, uh, we're being inundated with uh, U-Haulets, as you say, coming from New York to, to, to Florida. Although, you know, they've, they've messed up the supply chain so much that a lot of the new home construction is incomplete. So you got all these almost finished houses where they're yeah. waiting for something that they can't get. And so I actually think the uh, one of the reasons that the home, home prices have uh, not fallen more than they have is that they've messed up the supply chain so much that the inventories are lower than they should otherwise be. Well... We're uh, having a great conversation with Phil Kirpin. We'll be right back after we do Ward's weather uh, and our break. We'll be right back with a stimulating conversation with Phil Kirpin. Stay tuned. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. 
The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. All right, thank you very much. We're back on the Ward Scott Files here with Ward's Weather Report. Thanks to Lewis Oil, one of our great supporters of the show. And we're in the piney woods of north central Florida here. But we had frost out in the pasture today. And that meant we got down pretty close to freezing. Uh, We are now, according to my computers, at 37 degrees. But that's going to warm up. But not a whole heck of a lot. It's probably going to warm up, uh, oh, maybe, I don't know if it'll make 70 at all today. It's just um, the, the, the... It's January. What can we say? And it's the last Friday in January. It'll probably get up into the low 60s today. But we won't have any rain. And we did dodge the big heavy storms that came across and really wrecked havoc on uh, wrecked havoc on the middle of the country. So um, I'm listening also to my production people talk. So I'm losing my train of concentration here. But um, we're going to get through today pretty pleasantly. And uh, hopefully we'll have a great weekend. Um, fireplace weather last night, if you stayed up late enough. Uh, but the cold weather didn't really come in until later on in the night. We're talking with uh, Phil Kirpin here, President of the American Commitment. And um, we've been talking about the perplexing quagmire really we're in that nobody wants to admit we're in. Keep kicking the can down the road, if you will. And it's our economy. And you see it in the price of eggs. Uh, you see it in the price of fuel, particularly in the country here side here where we um, need fertilizer. Uh, the price of a roll of hay has doubled uh, because, quite frankly, the expense of raising that hay for the farmer when he had tractor diesel over $5 a gallon just won't work unless you push it back out to the consumer. And then we can't, we who raise the cattle and take them to market, can't get it back in the cattle prices at the market. So this is a, you know, a lot of con- people don't know this economy is going on, but this lends itself to uh, a diminishing amount of rural land devoted to food raising. And it becomes uh, housing and all that other business, particularly in our area where uh, it's just very difficult to hang on to a rural kind of lifestyle. I'm doing the best I can with my fingertips here with it. 
Uh, but they you know the numbers don't work. Now, also, uh, the interest rates of the central bank, and we'll talk to Phil about this, are expected to go up again. So um, this is going to result in higher borrowing costs, and it's going to lead houses, holds, and business. Already, the restaurant business, for example, is in a huge squeeze because they can only go up with the price of the, uh, the entree so much, but they have to, on the other hand, pay the people. And, um, and, the, and the two things don't meet. So a lot of restaurants have gone on a business. Bed Bath & Beyond, I heard, is going to go out of business. Phil, what do you make of all this, sir? Well, I think the, the good news on interest rates is I think they're almost done raising. I think we'll get one, one or two more increases, probably only a quarter point each. Uh, but I think that uh, the inflation measures are finally coming down for the most part, uh, which, you know, doesn't solve the problems that you're talking about, but it means they're not going to keep getting worse uh, the way they have been. And I think you, you raise some really important points that I think policymakers sometimes lose sight of, which is, you know, inflation is not uniform. It's not like the price of everything goes up, so people have more money and it's worth less and they have the same amount of stuff they had before. Uh, the money that's created goes into the banking system, but it, it gets out into the real economy in very, very uneven ways. Uh, and the farther you get uh, from banking to real things and you know people who are making things and growing things and so forth, uh, they're the ones who get squeezed. They're the ones who get squeezed because the cost of their inputs uh, goes up much faster than their ability to recover those costs from their own customers. And uh, that you get the precisely the phenomenon that you're talking about. And it causes a lot of economic damage. I and mean, inflation ends up uh, functioning as an extremely cruel tax that erodes the value of, uh, of your dollars for everything that you're purchasing. And you can't necessarily turn around and recover it by saying, hey, boss, give me a raise. Or, you know, in the case of a business saying, you know, we're going to jack up our prices for all of our own customers. Uh, you might not have any choice but to try, but some of your customers aren't going to be able to pay that because they're facing the same problem that you're paying. And then you don't have as many customers. And then, you know, you have uh, the consequence of that. And so uh, there's no question that there's a lot of pain and displacement when you have inflation running high. And uh, that's why it was so foolish, I think, to create all of that money and to, you know, to, to use that basically as a strategy for dealing with the virus. I don't think it helped us in any way on the virus front. And obviously it's caused tremendous problems. And the other thing is sort of on top of all the money creation, the inflation is, you know, we had politicians who thought you can turn a global economy off like a light switch and then turn it back on. Just an incredibly ignorant, naive understanding of the way an economy functions. And so when their lockdown orders went out, and they said, you know, you can't go to work and you can't you, you can't uh, leave your house and all this kind of stuff. Even if they only did that for a few weeks in some places, in some places they did it for a lot longer than that. Um, it takes years to recover from that. It's not it's not, uh, you know, it, it's not as simple as they, uh, you know, kind of thought it would be. And so we've had huge displacements in global supply chains as well. And so sometimes it's not even just. The, the price there sometimes sometimes you can't get things that you need they're not available they're not physically available because the shortages that were created uh, by trying to shut everything down the way they did and so 
uh, we've created, uh, it's sort of very unusual economic circumstances and we've caused a lot of pain and displacement. And of course, as I mentioned, we've also got an artificial labor shortage because we're still paying people too much not to work. And so that hurts a lot of businesses also who can't fill positions that they need filled. Uh, and so we've got, we, we've still got a lot of economic challenges. You know, I know the numbers came out and they were pretty good on GDP, but I think you look under the hood and there's still a lot of problems in this economy. And all of them relate, in my opinion, to too much government intervention. They should just stop trying to help us so much and uh, ease up on some of the taxes and the regulation and spending and uh, kind of allow people to get their affairs back in order and, and allow things to function uh, you know, more, more normally again. Well, let's do a hypothetical. Let's assume that we're going to have to suffer this for two more years because uh, and let's assume that the Congress has all good intentions now that's under Republican, thinly under Republican control. Uh, but we'll have to wait till the presidential election. And there's going to be a lot of uh, hoopla, you know, that confuses people between now and then. Uh, some of the terminology for these things will be actually the opposite of what it means. <laughs> it's so often the case, you know, uh, inflation reduction is really inflation. Right. You know, it's not. Inflation reduction. Act. That's the, it's the most humorously misnamed bill since Affordable Care Act. Isn't it, un isn't it unbelievable? And so, so. Can we wait? I guess I'm going to put it very simple can, as a pedestrian. Can we wait two years for a course correction? Or And, and, and the reason I, I bring this up is I'm looking at another article here, and I'm going to bring up the one that nobody wants to talk about, and that is how much we can continue to uh, uh, support uh, Social Security and Medicare. Well, that's yeah, the those, the, those trust funds are in trouble, no question about it. By the way, Democrats last year in the Inflation Reduction Act, they took about $300 billion out of Medicare prescription drug spending. They didn't use it to shore up Medicare. They used it to give to green energy companies. I, I know. Don't get me going. That gets me just livid, Phil. So, you know, even when they even when they do something that kind of seems like it might help Medicare, they're going to take money out of drug spending. Okay, but they didn't use it to keep in Medicare, to spend on other stuff. Isn't it, un isn't it incredible? It's, uh, yeah, so I mean, they, a lot of things have been headed in the wrong direction. I will say this, um, a lot of the COVID spending is now finally uh, phasing out, although there's still some big balances sitting that are going to be spent. So I think that at, at a minimum, with the Republicans controlling the House of Representatives, we can stop the digging. We're not going to get into a worse hole. Whether we can climb out is another thing, is another question. Uh, and of course, that's going to depend on what President Biden decides to do. I mean, you know, even if we can get things through the Senate, uh, he's always got that. He's got that veto pen. And, you know, we've got to see you know, how much he uses it. Bill Clinton vetoed welfare reform twice and he signed it the third time because by the third time they passed it, all 50 governors endorsed it. He just couldn't veto it a third time politically. And so he signed something that he hated and it ended up being a very successful policy. And so I, I don't think you can assume that just because you got a Democrat in the White House, you know, it's not worth passing bills because he'll veto them anyway. You know, I, I say pass as much as you can pass. And of course, you got to get through the Senate also, which Democrats still control. So it's a bit, bit more challenging situation than it was back then. But if you can get things through the House and Senate, he'll either sign them reluctantly and you can actually get a victory for the country or he'll veto them and you know that's also useful because it shows i think that people you know what he thinks what his priorities are what he's standing in the way of it creates a contrast that can be useful come election time but also sometimes 
uh, you keep even if you put, keep putting things on that desk, even if it's the same thing, sometimes the political pressure becomes great enough that you get a reversal. And so, as I mentioned, we're going to have the first vote ever in the House on terminating the COVID national emergency uh, next week. I'm very interested to see how many House Democrats vote for that. The last time we had a Senate vote, there were 12 Senate Democrats that voted for it. It got 62 votes back in November. So I'm very interested to see if the Democrats will toe the party line and more or less all vote against it, or if a bunch of them will will vote for it. Uh, but I think that that's very likely to pass the Senate again, as it did uh, back in November. And so they're going to put that thing on the president's desk and maybe he'll veto. It'll be interesting to see. But I think that's what they need to do is to figure out the things that they can actually pass through the House and the Senate that change the direction of the country for the better. And, you know, maybe he's threatening to veto, but make him do it. Make him use that veto pen as often as you possibly can, uh, because, you know, once in a while, the pressure will be too great and he'll actually sign something instead of vetoing it. But even if he doesn't, you'll, I think, educate the country by that. And uh, in, that will help make the case for the next election. Well, I'm looking also here at uh, some conversations in the print here about um, Europe and the problem they're having with their pension burdens, um, which is basically a kind of a precursor, I suppose, to us. And what they've done is try to raise the retirement age. Um, they've got uh, something perhaps we don't have, low birth rates, and what they sure have, we have, is a shrinking workforces. There's a also a secret joker in this deck, and that is uncontrolled, unaccounted for immigration. Are they going to end up, and of course, we don't have the answer to this. I know this is a rhetorical kind of deal. Subsidizing illegal workers? You know, how does this factor? Have you done any studies on this thing, Phil? Well, look, I mean, if you've got if you've got policies that are sitting, you know, large numbers of prime age males out of the workforce uh, and, you know, between the unemployment benefits we have and the health care benefits and uh, the, our total failure uh, to deal with the opioid epidemic. We've got a huge number of our own people who should be working, prime age workers who are sitting out of the workforce. So what happens, businesses uh, can't fill jobs. And so you've got enormous economic pressure. And uh, who, who meets that pressure? It just it's people pouring over the border illegally. And, uh, you know, a lot of businesses obviously won't deal with that because of their integrity. But you've got a bunch that will if they feel they have no other choice. And so, you know, that becomes one of the economic drivers of the lawlessness, which only makes the drug problems worse and everything else. And so we've got a really bad cycle. And it does relate to some of the other things we were talking about. But first and foremost, it's not about any of those things. It's about an administration that does not want to enforce our southern border. And, you know, when the world perceives that, the world is going to come through that southern border. And that's what we've seen. And we've got, you know, we've got border encounters running on a monthly basis now, something like what used to be an annual basis. I and mean, you look at these numbers and they're astonishing. And of course, who knows how many people get through without being encountered. And so there's a you know, sort of a mystery shadow real number. We don't even know what it is. And, you know, we're running, I think it's something we're running something like 250,000 encounters a month at the border. Well, you know, multiply that by 12, you're talking 3 million people a year. That's just what they encounter. We don't know how many they don't encounter. It's a lot of people. It's an enormous number of people. And, uh, there's a lot of dysfunction that comes with that. There's a lot of crime that comes with that. There are a lot of drugs that come with that. But there are also uh, economic burdens that are placed on K-12 education, on hospital systems, on everything else, uh, you know, that, that's related to that. And, um, you know, the other thing that I just find amazing, this is a little bit of a tangent, but 
Biden still has this insane, idiotic uh, vaccine mandate on foreign travelers, which is why, you know, Novak Djokovic can't play at the Miami Open in a couple of weeks, even though he's about to win the Australian Open. Isn't that something? Um, Isn't that something? Yeah. yeah but, but illegal immigrants are exempt. They're exempt. Yeah. Biden actually wrote it in his order. Uh, if you're an asylum seeker or an illegal immigrant, you don't have to be vaccinated. So I, I guess uh, I, he's protecting us from Novak. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, there's so many policies in this administration that are just incoherent. I know so many good people who um, want to get um, citizenship the right way. They've told me we could go to Miami for $300. We could become, so we don't want to look over our shoulder. They're being punished. Meanwhile, these illegal, if you will, entries are being forgiven. And it just makes no... And it may, and what we people, should have is exactly the opposite board. We ought to have iron-fisted control over that southern border so that we, nobody's coming in and we don't know who they are. And nobody's, you know, coming, coming in with, with bogus asylum claims. And we say, okay, great, no problem, enjoy the country. Uh, but we really, in my opinion... Uh, should make legal immigration a lot easier and a lot less expensive. You don't have to pay a lawyer five or ten thousand dollars, whatever it ends up being, you have to go through all of this crazy, you know, all this crazy red tape. Uh, it ought to be that if you can pass a background check and you're not any kind of, you know, crime or national security risk, and you've got a job waiting for you, there we, you ought to be able to get a visa. It shouldn't be so difficult and so complicated, especially at a time where you got help wanted signs up everywhere, and and businesses need to have access to workers, you know. I want to do everything to bring Americans back into the workforce, but uh, at the same time, we should make it a lot easier for people to come through in a legal and orderly way if, they, if they're going to be a contributor, if they're going to be working and paying taxes rather than being a net take from the government. Here's a comment by uh, pretty stupid listeners that are going on in the chat line here. If oil is ever priced in any currency other than the dollar, uh, we're in trouble. Can you uh, comment on that? Does that make sense to you or... You ever thought about that? Well, I think that uh, the U.S. is now such a major oil producer that uh, even if the world markets weren't priced in dollars, I don't think that would cause a crisis the way it would have, you know, sort of pre-fracking when we were made majorly dependent on imports. What I worry about more than uh, the than a potential move away from petrodollars is a move away from dollars as the global reserve currency, because uh, if central banks around the world stop using dollars as the reserve currency and move to something else, uh, then our currency will trade much more on the fundamentals than it does uh, now, where it's sort of uh, propped up almost no matter how much uh, we print. I mean, one of the insane things to me about the last couple of years is we printed all these dollars, trillions of dollars, and uh, we had all this domestic inflation, but the dollar continued to strengthen internationally. It was still uh, it was still attractive uh, to uh, all these other countries because they needed to hold it for reserves. And so uh, the the dollar crisis, if there is one, I think would would be triggered by a move by foreign central banks out of dollar reserves to something else. Uh, I'm less worried about uh, a change in the way that oil is priced, just because. Uh, even if that means we would have to pay more for oil imports, which of course it would, uh, we're now such a major producer that that's less of a threat than it would have been, you know, a decade or two ago. I'm a Phil Kirpin, president of the American Commitment, a regular guest on Word Scott Files, which we're very honored to have his presence when he gets time to talk to us, uh, stationed in Washington, D.C., and uh, really in, involved with uh, AmericanCommitment.org. Check it out. 
Uh, we, re- we redid the website board. I don't know if you've been there uh, recently, but it's much better now. It's much easier to use and people should be able to find all of the action items and stuff we're talking about pretty easily. Good. And is there a place for people to communicate with you through that website? Uh, yes, you can. Uh, you can sign up for our email list on there. And uh, there, also, if you, um, if you do any of the action items, that'll also get you on our list. Ericacommitment.org. Check that website out and you'll see that you've got a, a, a connection with a, a really uh, sound, uh, a fundamental in research, uh, is, which is what we're all about, is researching and getting to you best conversations we can about what some of the issues are affecting your lives. Even though you may not realize it, uh, you may just see it here and there at the gas pump or maybe in the egg price. But, um, you know, this thing I was visiting with you a moment ago about the prices of hay and things that affect our rural economy, the, 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 the price of the hay will never come down. You know, I mean, we know the guys that grow it. Uh, they're good guys. But once it's a uh, X number of dollars per roll, it's going to stay X number of dollars per roll. I wouldn't imagine they'd bring it down because they're gun shy also. Uh, They've got to put away some kind of reserve to keep the next uh, government folly. Uh, uh, You know, you can't you can't stop assuming that the government is going to do stupid things, you know. Well, this is the thing about inflation. One of the reasons it's so corrosive is that it's not just about the inflation that's already occurred, but it's about the expectations also. And if you expect prices to keep rising, you've got to keep your own prices high, right? Uh, you can't uh, you can't risk cutting your prices and uh, getting squeezed even further. And so uh, you're right. Inflationary price increases tend to be sticky. Uh, we're, we're probably not going back. But what, what we hope will happen is that we'll, we'll stop rising. And that, uh, you know, I think the key to that is going to be not doing any more of these multi-trillion dollar extra giant spending bills. And uh, if, we, if, if Congress can resist doing that, look, it'd be great if they can actually cut spending. And I certainly hope that that'll be the outcome of the debt ceiling confrontation. We can get some real cuts uh, because in the long term, in terms of that debt crisis we talked about at the top of the hour, that's going to be really, really, really important. But in terms of the near term and solving inflation, they just need to not pass any more of these giant extra spending bills. And I, I think as, if they can manage to do that, inflation is going to keep coming down. Well, are there any issues that we haven't touched on that you all have been working on that uh, you see, uh, if you will, looming on the horizon that we don't know about? The, the only other one I would mention is the latest on the student loan bailouts, which we've talked about uh, before on your show. Uh, there's a Supreme Court uh, oral argument on February 28th on the ten dollars or $20,000 giveaway that Biden's trying to do. Uh, but he's not even waiting for that before he's announced another student loan bailout, which I think is even more destructive. And that is uh, he's changing the terms on, a, uh, on what's called income-driven repayment. And he's changing them in a way that's totally different than what Congress had actually written and that basically dumps the majority of college costs onto taxpayers. This is the way the new Biden plan works. Uh, in, no matter how much money is on your student loans, under the Biden plan, in any given month, you only pay 5% of the amount of your income above 225% of the federal poverty level. So if you're a family of four, that's about $68,000. If you only make $68,000, you pay zero. If you make, say, $100,000, you, you would Take the hundred thousand minus the sixty-eight; it would be thirty-two thousand. Now your maximum payment is sixteen hundred dollars. It's five percent of that amount for the year. So it would be, you know, so the monthly payment would be that divided by twelve. Uh, 
in effect, most people, even if they take out gigantic loans, would make only token payments, would make very small payments because it's only going to be that, you know, it's only going to be 5% of that difference. Uh, and, and so you're going to have millions of people who will literally, literally never make a payment. Taxpayers are going to pay for their entire full freight. They've got free college out of this deal. Uh, and you've got an awful lot of other people that are just going to make minimum payments. It's 10 to 20 years, and then the whole balance is gone. Uh, this is really a backdoor to a Bernie Sanders type free college for all taxpayers pick up the full cost kind of thing, because you know a lot of people, it will be totally free. And for others, it's just going to be token payments. And if they are allowed to do this, if they're not stopped, you know, university administrators will conspire with their students to raise tuitions to infinity and, uh, you know, luxury, this, that, or the other thing, whatever you can imagine, because all of the increase will be absorbed by taxpayers. As the payments that people actually pay and that students pay back will be capped at this very low number. And so I think this is going to end up costing even more than the last proposal. I think it's going to be hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars. It's going to be extremely destructive uh, to our educational system as well, in my judgment. And the other element of this word, if you think about it, you know, they're subsidizing the worst paying majors the most. Because if you go to a cosmetology school or you go to you study sociology or underwater basket weaving or whatever it is that doesn't really have an income earning potential, you're probably never going to make a loan payment because you're not going to make more than 225% of the federal poverty level. And then if you do, you're going to make some tiny payment. Uh, but if you do study engineering or medicine or something that's a high earning, then, then you're going to end up paying back your loans. And so we're subsidizing majors that earn less with a full subsidy, free college. And so I think it's an incredibly bad idea they're on public comment right now. So they're actually, they've got to listen to the public or pretend they're listening to the public. So we're doing a letter writing campaign into the Department of Education opposing this proposal right now. You can, you can that's on AmericanCommitment.org. And that's really the, of the uh, issues we're focused on right now, that was the one that we, we haven't mentioned. So that's the other one that we're, we're focused on right now. And of course, if they ignore public comment, which they probably will, we're going to need to try to get Congress to step in and stop this policy. And so that, that'll be the next step. Supreme Court could stop it, though, right? They could. And of course, you know, we're still we're waiting to see what they do on the last, you know, student loan bailout from this administration, which, as I said, they've got a, uh, a oral argument on that one on, on February 28th. Uh, this one's going to have, I think, the same challenge, maybe even worse, which is who's got standing to sue. And so I'm, I'm hoping someone can figure out a theory uh, to get it litigated, because I do think it's on very weak ground legally. But, you know, I think a lot of what they're trying to do they think they can get away with, not because it's legal, but because nobody can figure out how to challenge them. And so I hope that someone can figure out how to get it into court on this income-driven repayment one. Uh, but it's not obvious to me who the plaintiff would be at. Well, we've certainly enjoyed speaking with you again. Uh, it's about 9.57. We bail out at 9.59. So we've got a couple of minutes here. Uh, we've been talking with Phil Kirpin, who is uh, got AmericanCommitment.org. Check out the website. There's plenty of places there that you can respond to issues and do letter writing, and it's actually effective. What happens, just to uh, sum up here, once you get public response to your issues on the website, how did that then translate? I know you've been in the president's Oval Office. It's just a briefly, where do you take your um, 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 work once the public's responded? Well, all of these... All of the 
all the letters to Congress get tallied up. And, you know, I, one of the reasons we only do constituent letters, we only have you send letters to your own congressman. And, you know, sometimes you might think that's useless because my congressman's great. They don't need to hear from me. That's not true. They need to hear from their constituents because what happens is they all talk to each other and they go into conference meetings and they say, are you hearing from, are you hearing from people about, oh, I've got, I've got 12 letters. I've got 50 calls. You know, they, they have staff that tally all this up for them and they know, they know the counts, they know the numbers. And so they know which, which issues are really generating heat that people care about, that they want action on. And those are the things that they prioritize. And, you know, if you're represented by a Democrat or somebody who's weak on one of these issues, you know, from time to time, they are going to go the other way because they hear so much and they've got so much pressure and they're hearing it from their own constituents and they're hearing it that other offices are, are hearing the same thing. And so uh, it, it does matter. It matters whether you weigh in on these issues and, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, you don't always see a, a sea change in instantly, but it affects the course of these issues over time and the outcome on some of these votes when you have citizen engagement. It can only help. And uh, in terms of the public comment, you know, when you have an administration that's hostile to us, uh, they're less likely to be persuaded by our comments uh, than, than maybe you would have in a Republican administration. But um, they're legally required to address them. And, uh, and, and I do think that, you know, when you do these sort of grassroots type comments into these comment dockets, uh, it does matter what the numbers are because, you know, left-wing groups will sometimes put in 10,000 comments on something. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Move On or somebody puts in 50,000 comments saying, it's the greatest idea ever. You're giving free college. This is wonderful. And if our side doesn't show up at all, then, you know, the stories will be about how everybody wanted this and the agency, right, that right. everybody wanted this. Thanks so much for joining us today, Phil. And we look forward to talking to you again in the not-too-distant future. Uh, it's always a great pleasure. Check us out now on wardscottfiles.com. We'll have this posted very shortly. Uh, also follow us on Rumble and uh, be sure to uh, support us if you can. You know, we take donations and also uh, we thank our sponsors. So everybody have a great weekend. Phil, thank you so much for joining us and have a great day. Warthog Command Center out.